thank you for joining us here on Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm here today talking with composer Carter John Rice about one of his just really cool new electroacoustic pieces uh, for, well, maybe I should leave that as a surprise. We'll talk about what it's for here in a moment. All right, Carter. Well, it's wonderful having you around here and catching up on uh, this this new mixtape of ours that we're putting together. I love how Rob has kind of uh, paired us off. Um, mm-hmm. And I can't remember if this was the initial configuration or if this is one that just kind of happened out of uh, random chance. I'm pretty sure I saw a max patch that Rob made. Yeah, I think yeah, I think we were randomly paired. And then I think maybe there was some tweaking done. I don't yeah. remember, but I think that I think you and I were just randomly put together, which is great since we've known each other for so long. I know that's kind of fun, isn't it? Um, and I think I have been fascinated about the piece that we're going to talk about of yours uh, since uh, you had announced its its inception and performance. I think, uh, how old is this? Is this only a couple years old, right? The performance, I think the first performance happened maybe two some years ago, okay. and it had kind of been in the works for about two years prior to that was when the idea came. So it was a very long um long running up to the actual performance but it's still relatively new yeah. it, it had like an elephant's gestation period almost right yeah, yeah. It did, it did. yes it was longer than most pieces it took quite a while to figure out what i wanted it to be and then putting it together and then realizing it, it yeah a longer lifespan so the piece that we're going to be talking about of yours then is aku's magic yes <laughs> is that is that accurate that is the correct pronunciation, yes. <laughs> so so this piece that I'm kind of geeking out about, and I'm, I'm so happy that I kind of twisted your arm into doing this, uh, even mm-hmm. though it has a significant visual and theatrical component, if I'm allowed mm-hmm. to, to utilize that, um, yeah, sure. uh, which doesn't really translate well to the podcast medium. But I'm, I'm so happy that you kind of agreed to do this uh, because I think the idea from its inception has fascinated me. And I don't mm-hmm. know if there are any other pieces in the genre of electroacoustic music that do this particular thing. Is that, is that fair to say? To the best of my knowledge, uh, and, and a few other people that have been doing this a bit longer than I seem to agree that this is probably the first piece of its kind to combine live magician with electronics. So, of is, course, there's the yeah. big reveal, right? Acrid yeah. Magic is this. So, live magician and electronics. Now, are you... Um, are you a practicing magician on some levels, or did you have to learn like a whole new set of skills for this? Uh, I think it would be unfair to call me a currently practicing magician. I think a long <laughs> since retired one is the more accurate term. And, it, you know, I, I think like a lot of kids, you know, when you're young, you kind of see some magic shows or magic tricks, and you get really into it for a little while. And that was me when I was pretty young, 9, 10, 11, 12. But I got really into it for a while, around the time I was 12, 13, and 14, and spent a lot of time practicing. And um, I very much got into the the whole sleight of hand side of it, which was fun, because, you know, that's very much like learning an instrument where you have to do, you know, continual practice over and over. And that was a thing I latched onto at a pretty young age. Of course, you know, around the time I got to high school or so, it kind of fell out because I got more into music and theater and all this other stuff that certainly was more pressing. But a lot of those uh, initial skills and some of the concepts behind putting together an act like that stuck with me. And so then when the the technical idea came around, it, I had to practice and brush everything up because it had been many years since I had done any of that. <laughs> but it the you know it, it was kind of like riding a bike. Uh, I, I had held on to a fair amount of that that muscle memory and the, the skill set. So I, I didn't have to start from scratch. If I had to do that, I don't think the piece would have ever come into existence. I felt comfortable doing that kind of stuff and doing it in front of an audience already, which was very useful. Uh, but it, it took a little time to get it the skills back up to where they needed to be. So, I mean, there's there's so many directions that we can take this conversation in. And so I just, I, this is almost stream of consciousness. It, do, yeah. <laughs> do you imagine this piece could get played outside of, of you? Is, if somebody else has like these kind of, magician mm-hmm. skills um is that something that you imagine could be accomplished in its current state you know it probably could i'd say the only the only downside to that is because the sort of technical component to the piece and the way it's put together is very hyper specific to sort of get the sequencing of it right so it wouldn't allow for much um sort of expression or uh, intuition or improvisation on the part of any other performer mm-hmm. uh, unless they really really got to know exactly what is technologically happening uh, along the way to really, you know, and so yes, someone could do it. It would just be a little unfortunate because it would be so similar to my performance. Ah, I and, see. And, th- and I think that that ends up 
you know, kind of diminishing the, the art form of it a little bit if it's just going to be a copycat. So if I did a future piece, it would be fun and very technologically challenging to try to create an environment that allows another performer to take it and build off it and, you know, make something of their own with sort of the same framework. This piece, though, uh, really doesn't allow that. So yeah, I would be fine if someone else with the skill set asked if they wanted to do it. <laughs> they would just have to. They'd have to be very precise. There's no score. I just memorized what I was going to do along the way and practiced it. And, and and I had a couple of little visual cues that appear on the laptop screen to remind me what to do in case I forget what uh -huh. the next thing is. Um, so if they're cool with that, then yes, I'd love to see someone else try it because then I can relax while watching it because it's very stressful. <laughs> and and from that standpoint, you could perceive the piece from a different vantage point because i mean this mm -hmm. is an argument that i make uh and i know several of our colleagues make to their students that you know you want to have that opportunity to have other people perform your music not just because it, it expands your network but mm -hmm. you also listen to your music from a different space when you mm -hmm. are performing it than if you yeah. are in the audience uh, so I imagine, yeah, the, the stress of making sure those very well-executed and timed uh, sleight-of-hand tricks that you're doing during this piece is kind of preoccupying some some of the space that you might use to experience it. <laughs> yes, yeah, very much so. Well, and as people will see uh, during, you know, if if we if they if they watch the performance after hearing this, there's there's Which a, there's totally a video. Yes, yes, and there's a video on my website right now, and we'll. I, I think I need the version I sent to you. I should actually upload because that's the more recent performance, and I should put that one online. But uh, you know, we may talk about this in a minute, but. You know, there's a part of the trick where I pull out a bottle of alcohol and kind of pour a drink, and it's it's kind of a little shtick. And it it is real alcohol, and I'm definitely drinking some backstage <laughs> beforehand so that I can mellow out enough to get through that. Because I'm I you know I play violin, and I, I I mean I haven't played in the last few years, but I'm, I'm and I used to do theater, and I'm used to being on stage. I have plenty of performance experience, and I rarely get nervous. But this piece so much on my mind technically and timing wise and to keep track of that it was just a bear to get through so i was actually really glad when i stopped doing it <laughs> i took everything apart and started saying no if people wanted to see it again because i just i couldn't put myself <laughs> through it oh that's amazing um we had we had mentioned briefly a couple moments ago the the technical uh considerations and of course the the things with timing how have you put this piece together because it, it is it is it interactive? Are you triggering things with your gestures? How, how does this work? Yeah, uh, and that's a really good question that could lead to some other great points of discussion as well. But it, it is a, a very much a live, interactive uh, sort of piece. And that's a big thing for me because right now, th this concept of composers and uh, uh, musicians of all types sort of building their own instruments and using sensors and data-driven instruments, as they call them up in, in Oregon, or NIMES, you know, is the other term that we often hear, new mm -hmm. instruments mm -hmm. of musical expression, you know, because it, it's so easy to access th these uh, this hardware and the software and to program and build your own stuff. That's, that's very accessible these days. So we're seeing a plethora of new things being built. Uh, Eli Fieldsteel has a really good piece that he and I were working on at the same time that uses similar tech. His is called Brain Candy, oh, which yeah. you should also check out if you want to see um, a very uh, very different piece with very similar tech. But in my case, yeah, I'm using a, a couple of motion sensors on my body and one on the table um, that, I'm, that I'm sort of performing on that responds to pressure. And so at different points in the piece, moving my arm in different orientations or hitting the table at particular times trigger different events, sound cues, uh, you know, uh, all this kind of stuff that goes along the way. And that was a big, big artistic component for me because I did not want this piece to simply be pantomime where I hit play on a track right. and then I just pray to God I stick with because you you know you've <laughs> you've seen it and you can imagine how difficult it would be to try to time some of those key it'd oh, be just impossible and, and so I wanted to make sure I could just be doing my thing and then when I do the thing the sound I want to have happen happens you know and and that it would be very uh, organic and responsive to what I'm doing and I think that there are a lot of pieces uh, sort of in this new genre that's that's developing that falls short on that and they end up being really artistically uh, like uh, I'm trying to think they, they, they miss they miss the mark artistically a bit because of that well, because they, there isn't this dynamic relationship yeah it, it, and forgive me if I use a, a, an incorrect analogy but it might seem flat or, or more two-dimensional it, it loses mm -hmm. that kind of um, that almost improvisatory component mm -hmm. that that comes yeah, from yeah. that ability <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, just like a piece of music by 
you know, by Bach or Beethoven or, or even a, a contemporary composer today. It, it's another reason that I often talk about how I don't like pieces of music that are for instrument and fixed media because they're mm. kind of the exact same length of time every single time. Yeah. And not to say they can't be expressive, but at some levels you end up sometimes limiting expressivity on part of the performer. Mm -hmm. And and I did I wanted the same thing here with this piece where I didn't want to just have it the exact same amount of time every single time I do it. I want to be able to respond to the audience and you know if I get a laugh at one point I may want to wait longer if I don't, which <laughs> happened when I did this at at the electroacoustic barn dance. I don't know why, but just no one thought this piece was funny there. <laughs> it was just this dead crowd. And I think it's because I was on the first concert and people were just tired from traveling. It was it was horrible. Um but you know, it, but that was good to know that I could just get through the piece quickly then. You know, I would just right. move on from one thing to another. And so, yeah, having that dynamic quality to it is a huge part of this piece. And I think that that's a goal of mine in other pieces in the future that might use similar tech. Wow. Now, um, the the sound materials that you're using, are, are is this a combination of pre-recorded sounds and uh, things that are being recorded live? Or is it more of one or the other? Um, yeah, it's it's primarily pre-recorded material. There is a microphone on the table. Sometimes I would do it with two, depending on the venue. And I do, at the beginning, capture some... Uh, not capture, I do amplify some live sound just gotcha. to sort of give this relation. And then later, you know, part of it is kind of tricking you it's it's pretty easy to tell because it's, it's a little hard to fake but in the concert space ideally you can't necessarily tell if i'm making the sound in real time or if it is just a pre-recorded sound because mm -hmm. the sort of the sound of these metal objects that i'm using is important uh, but most things are just pre-recorded um, and then triggered at the proper time i i usually am not a fan of recording uh, the instrument live during a, 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 a concert and then doing stuff to the sound and then do and then putting it out because I've just seen stuff go wrong too, too many often. Variables. Where, you know, yeah, yeah, where someone has like a loop pedal and they 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 have like a, a, a their, you know their reed cracks yeah. right when they start the loop and then that goes for thirty minutes. Yeah. I'm just weary of that. So this piece doesn't rely on that. That you know, uh, on on multiple levels, then it would seem this piece kind of incorporates this aspect of sleight of hand, if, if that's mm -hmm. fair to say, because yeah. you know you are you are obviously performing uh, magical tricks, and the electroacoustic elements are responding to your gestures and movements and pressure, as you were talking mm -hmm. about. Um, but then there's also this idea that you're amplifying some sound in the beginning and then maybe kind of tricking us into thinking that, you know, all of the sound subsequently is going to be coming from that sound source. Since you're, are, are they metal balls? Is that what you're kind of yep. using? Yeah, to they're little uh, steel ball bearings. Yep. Steel ball bearings, yeah. And mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, you... There's there's so many other things I know I know we're kind of running a little short on time because these are these are supposed to be short but uh, but there again I'm geeking out over this piece man mm -hmm. um, okay. this this idea of uh, uh, the actual routine mm -hmm. that you're doing it's it starts off as a bit of a shell game more or less mm -hmm. right um, is yeah. there anything is is there a reason you picked that particular type of routine. Mm -hmm. Um, I, yeah, a couple of reasons. One, and, and so I have to give credit because there was a magician I remember in the 90s, and I think this guy's still alive, but he did that, the sort of cups and balls routine where you do the three cups and the, you know, the multiple. He, he would do that with steel ball bearings, and that's where I got the idea because he would sort of spin the cup back and forth like I do to show that there was an object under there. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that's great because that gives me a very classic um, routine, but I have the object to make sound then, you know, like right. I, I, so I was able to draw inspiration from that because I, you know, I'm still a, a, a musician and I, I wanted this to be, you know, to make sense in the concert hall. So I needed stuff that can make sound and a lot of stuff that you might use that's traditionally, uh, used for it, it, by sleight of hand artists and other magicians doesn't make a lot of sound. You know, we don't think of magic as especially noisy. Um, that's true. And I, and I wasn't necessarily going to bring a tiger on stage, you know, or, or other crazy <laughs> stuff. Um, and so, and it was also a combination of that um, magic with that kind of stuff, like the, the shell game routine, the cups and balls, the, the sleight of hand with that is just easier. Okay. Um, like, it's pretty easy to make a steel ball bearing kind of go where you want it and disappear and palm it in your hand, um, as opposed to working with cards, which are a lot harder to mm -hmm. do, um, and they just take a lot more time to practice. I'm working on a second one of these, um, which is going to be with cards, which I think will be fun. And what the, what's going to be fun about that, too, is I'm going to have a camera facing down on the desk, so regardless of where you are in the concert space, you can see a little better, because nice. that was 
one of the biggest failings of this piece. It's meant for a small room, and it kept getting put in large concert halls, and then no <laughs> one can see what I'm, you know, and so I think that'll be fun. But, yeah, I want to work with cards in the future because cards can make great sounds. Like, I mean, think about how many electroacoustic pieces you know that use samples of people shuffling cards. Oh, yeah. and, you know, it's, it's a great sound. So doing that live I think could be really fun. And if I had felt, uh, you know, it was in the middle of my doctorate and doing all this stuff, if I had felt that I had the time to actually get good enough at, at card magic again, I would have incorporated cards for sure because I love that sound. But it was mostly pragmatic. I had to pick a sound that I could work with um, and that was accessible and that just worked well in a microphone. So maybe one of the last technical questions then, and if it's a trade secret, uh, wow, that that joke kind of worked on multiple levels uh, yeah. with this piece. <laughs> if it's a trade secret, feel free to feel free to uh, you know uh, decline an answer. But mm -hmm. so sure. you have obvious sounds that you can make with uh, a steel ball bearing, um, which mm -hmm. I think we'll, we'll be able to hear in some of the excerpts we have of the sure. audio. Um, but what types of processing are you using to to these mm -hmm. very common metallic sounds? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm trying to, you know, I'm always bad at remembering what I do. Oh, when man, I do a piece because I, yeah, I, 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 I have the I have the worst practice of this stuff where I never save presets on my, you know, uh, plugins and I never <laughs> I never save sessions. I kind of like I throw a sample into like Logic. I think I, back when I was using Logic and I I'll do stuff to it. I'll bounce it out and I'll just delete the whole project. I just won't save any of it. I'll be like, hey, I've got the result. I'm horrible like that. Don't tell Elaney. And um, yeah. <laughs> I. Uh, but with this one, there, there's there is some degree of just synthesis to create some of the sort of background tones. But okay. otherwise, I'm I'm pretty straightforward. I do a lot of time and pitch stretching, um, mm -hmm. and then a lot of filtering of those time and pitch stretch samples, um, and then. You know, um, I, I'm a really big fan of very complex delays to do mm. stuff. So I, I just love you. Not delays in the traditional, you know, ping pong. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, um, but, you know, a thousand delays a millisecond apart, which is, you know, basically just another type of filter. But mm -hmm. uh, uh, that kind of stuff. And then um, a lot of granular stuff as well, which, you know, uh, that lead, that derives to the uh, time and pitch stretching as well. But I don't know if you've ever used um, like Cecilia. That's one of my go-to apps, um, Cecilia oh, no. 5, um, huh. which is a great it's – it's a freeware piece that was built in um, – in C sound and now it's available through Ajax audio AJAX I'm saying that because everyone should download Cecilia because it's got a wonderful um, granular module and all these great synthesis modules. oh I just hit my mic <laughs> it's got all these great granular modules and great synthesis modules so that I remember was used very heavily in this piece and uh, I also like using reverb and filtering reverb to create some space and yeah I, I mean I'm not I'm not a person who I think um does anything too crazy i stick to pretty traditional techniques and just try to use them as to the best of my ability well in that too it makes logical sense then because um you know jamie and i are always talking to our students my, my wife jamie lee sampson for for those who might not be familiar um wait you guys are married i know right what <laughs> God, do you know each other so why would you marry a composer <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, so Jamie and I are always talking to our uh, students about this idea of, of balancing out various musical parameters. So in, mm -hmm. in this particular piece, you're kind of dialing up the theatrical uh, kind of elements and the visual elements of this piece. And so it would make sense then that, that maybe in the audio realm, things are, mm -hmm. are more or less straightforward if, if that's yeah. not too pejorative. Oh no, that that's absolutely yeah. I mean, I'm I'm happy with the soundscape that mm -hmm. this piece generates, and and well, certainly I think it's plenty fantastic. of time was put into it, you know, to make it work. But that definitely because you know we're we're humans and we only have so much time at the end of the day to work on a piece, and the vast majority of effort went into the the theatrical and visual components, and just also just making that. It was my first time working with like accelerometers and motion sensors and mm -hmm. pressure sensors. You know, I just I was learning how to take those sensors, get their data into an Arduino, send that serial data into Mac, scale it, use it. To, you know, I had never done that before, and it's not. Um, especially hard I encourage any composers to you know explore that especially if you're young and in school and you have someone who can help you with that it's a wonderful skill set to have it's not hard at all there's just a learning curve the first time you're doing it so that took so much time uh, when I was first learning how to do this which is why I'm excited to do another one because right. I just get to take all the assets I had from before and just change what I'm doing with them so that's that's always lovely so cool man uh, I'm not, again, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about this oh, particular yeah. piece. Um, is well, there any, thank is, you. Is there anything else that you, uh, you feel like should be mentioned about it before we move on? 
Um, let's see. Maybe just a, a closing thought on it. Um, sure. And, and I hope I don't sound um, too self-righteous uh, with, with saying this. I, I just want to uh, encourage any composers who are listening to explore this kind of technology and to be very mindful when creating pieces like this that either sort of qualify as nimes, you know, as mm -hmm. we were saying before, when you build your own instruments, and really making sure to try to put some time into the fact that um, just because you can do a thing with some of these these technological options doesn't mean it automatically yields an interesting artistic result. And I say that because I've seen a lot of pieces at, at Seamus and other other conferences in in the last few years where individuals you know take an iPad and they just kind of tilt it and they use the you know the the built-in accelerometer mm -hmm. and then they kind of tilt it again. And that just to me is often artistically void. And and I think that we should really encourage composers who explore with this kind of stuff to make sure that what they are doing on stage is interesting and dynamic and you know exciting to watch in its own right if you're going to bring a, a theatrical motion element i think that's why people uh use this tech with dancers so often oh, because yeah. then they autom they automatically get the, all the skills and and the sort of control of their body and the space and the motion that dancers bring in and it, it solves that problem for them but sometimes i see composers that just I, and i i i can't I, I of course won't give any specific examples i just i know of somewhere i've seen where i wish people were being more conscious of making sure there is this one-to-one -one relationship of what we're seeing and what we're hearing and that what you're doing on stage has the ability to demonstrate some kind of virtuosity with what you're doing because that's what we enjoy with watching in performance and not to say that my magic act was super virtuosic by any means <laughs> but you you understand that it it takes you know that it Skill. could demonstrate all this exactly yeah right. and, and that it's, it's fun to watch those kind of things and and that there are some great pieces that explore that in a couple of places like the university of oregon and and louisiana state university are great centers where people are doing all this kind of stuff and so i encourage people to check out composers uh and and students at those schools and see what they're doing it's a great thing to check out yeah that's fantastic and and to, i mean it's it's true of all music acoustic or electroacoustic or mm -hmm. those that incorporate both where we have mm -hmm. it's it's cult it's you know when people listen to music we can listen to music anywhere in the 21st century mm -hmm. why go to a concert and i think i argue mm -hmm. that it's the experience and so if yeah, the um, performance experience isn't one that is captivating and artful mm -hmm. no there's there's really no reason to sit in that specific mm -hmm. room with all these other people to experience something that isn't meant for that environment so i think that's a yeah. great plug for a lot of cool. things Anyway, well, thank you very much for your, your thoughtful questions about the piece. I'm glad it excites you. Oh, <laughs> it's fun. To no end, man. It, it, and I'm no. looking forward to this next one. <laughs> yeah, me too. It's going to be a while. Like, it might be years because um, the last one took four years. And I, I have big ideas. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, we're, we're all going to be bald and old and chubby sitting in the back of the hall by the time I'm done with it. But, you know. Oh, that sounds. Uh, thank you for painting that picture of my future. <laughs> all right. Yeah. It's all, it's all of us. Yeah, it's, it's, all, it's all there. So, uh, if you're tuning in, uh, uh, this is Carter Rice, a member of Adjective, and I'm here today with Andrew Martin-Smith, 
to talk about uh, a work of his for a female a cappella choir called Ipsa Vita. So thank you very much, Andrew, for being with us here today. Oh, man, it's my pleasure, Carter. <laughs> yes, and for those of you who don't know, Andrew and I have known each other for a number of years. He was working on his DMA at Bowling Green State University when I was doing my master's degree there. And so we go back, what, seven, eight years uh, Oh, now, man, I have like to that? count. Yeah, it's, it's been nearly a decade. Yeah. Yeah, it's because I got to Bowling Green in 2011, yeah. so seven plus years at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's it's been a while. It's it's, it's going back. Yeah, and it was. Fine. I remember for the first year, I didn't know who you were. I like I knew there was the, I knew there was an Andrew Martin Smith that was getting his doctorate because I had heard about because of course it's not you know I hear your name and My there were phantom. a couple other and then yeah and then I had seen you at some concerts helping out and doing stuff and I was like huh cool <laughs> and someone told me once they were like oh yeah that's Andrew and I was like well of course it is <laughs> it just made perfect sense so um. Thank you for sharing this piece with me, Andrew. I greatly enjoyed listening to it, and I you shared it with me a, f a few days ago, and it was great because I got to listen to it, and I didn't have the score yet, which is fun, so I listened without the score. Then you sent the score to me. I listened with the score, and then I took a day off and listened again, and I always love to get a chance to do that where I take some time between listenings on a piece. So you, it, you know, mm -hmm. it's it just like studying for a test. If you don't take time after you study to kind of let things absorb, it doesn't, it doesn't work, and this piece was fun to spend some time away from in between and listen again, and I enjoyed... Uh, all my listenings to it. I enjoyed it more with the score because, you know, I'm a composer and I love following along with oh, the score. Oh, we, we and love I think to geek makes, out, right? Yeah. Yes, and I, and I think you make scores that look really great, which we can talk about in a little bit. But just to maybe get us started, um, since, you know, the piece with, of mine we talked about is it's, it's kind of in the name, and when you watch it, you kind of get what it's about. But this piece is, uh, you know, uh, perhaps a bit more shrouded in, in some degree of mystery of sort of what it's exploring, what it's about. So could you maybe just give us a, a, a brief overview of what this piece is, what it's about, and what you're exploring? Well, sure. Uh, and, and I guess I should qualify this by saying it's, uh, I don't very often write pieces that are protest pieces or have uh, kind of politically charged undertones mm -hmm. to it, but this, this is definitely one of those. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, Ipsa Vita actually takes um, a quote from a meme writer from the uh, uh, Roman Empire, uh, Publilius Cyrus, who uh, is a contemporary of uh, Marcus Cicero. Um, and so uh, the, the thought that it's, uh, that, it's, that it's kind of conveying is this idea that uh, life is brief but made longer by misfortune, mm -hmm. which I think, I think is very topical uh, in our in our current state, where we are continuously continuously being bombarded with uh, these um, negative or false or misleading kinds of statements or pieces of quote unquote news um, mm -hmm. that really serve no other purpose than to distract us from our daily lives and and really kind of uh, point out things that might actually not be so pervasive as mm -hmm. uh, as are being stated. Of course, the mm -hmm. flip side of that is there are plenty of things that are very systemic and pervasive that are trying to be swept under the rug. So it's this, this whole very interesting time of being um, informed and misinformed simultaneously. So that's mm -hmm. kind of what this choir piece sets out to explore. Okay. And so... For you, you know, as a composer and someone who, you know, you say you don't necessarily do a ton of pieces like this, um, how do some of those concepts for you translate musically? What is it that sort of, um, you know, this concept of some degree of protest or this concept of, you know, the quote about uh, life being made longer by misery, what are some of the initial things that struck you musically when, when you decided that you wanted to maybe explore and set that concept to music? What are some of the sonic ideas or the choral ideas or vocal ideas that, that came to mind? Yeah, the, the thing about, I think, the most successful protest pieces are the pieces that aren't only about the protest. Um, mm. it, like like you were saying with your uh, electroacoustic and acousmatic and, and um, uh, electronic music that is very kind of theatrical and performance driven and you want there to be a one-to-one -one correlation with what's being seen and what's being heard. Um, it's not just about the technology you're using, mm -hmm. right? There's, it's yeah. not just about the impulse uh, or the, the ideas that I might be protesting. And so I wanted to kind of think about this abstractly. Like, this is a protest mm -hmm. piece, but it's not really protesting something incredibly specific. Like, I never mm – -hmm. there's no names, really. There's mm -hmm. no um, – this, this should be a piece that – is meant in some ways to be a time capsule, but one that mm -hmm. can survive beyond this decade. 
um, mm-hmm. because maybe someone years from now could stumble upon it and it still would resonate. So the ideas sure. that I tried to capture sonically were um, these these notions that we're playing with in our contemporary culture of the uh, united but divided uh, kind mm-hmm. of approaches to things. So I do a lot of um, play off of uh, unison writing uh, between the sections of the ensemble and extreme uh, polyphony and at times micro polyphony where we get just mm-hmm. these noise textures. Uh, so mm-hmm. extreme division versus complete unification. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And, and I think that that comes across really successfully. And, and another thing that's used in this piece, which it, it's very apparent when we hear is there's a, a fair amount of spoken text being mm-hmm. said, you know, often over musical material. Um, one thing, you know, that struck me when listening to, the, a lot of the text, it's, it's very clear when listening that it relates to news and media, mm-hmm. right? You know, I mean, I think that that's very clear with, I mean, literally they're saying breaking news, but you know, there, <laughs> there are other times where they say things like what we found will shock you, you know, and, and other, you know, you'll never guess why. So to me, this piece very much kind of could have been called like clickbait. You know, it almost seemed like it was more exploring that element of news than anything else. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, oh, very, very much. In fact, I think there's a part of the, the composition where I allow the performers to ad lib uh, any other kind of topical click baity things that might mm-hmm. come to their mind as they're performing mm-hmm. this which which uh, it really adds something to that that uh, chaotic texture toward the middle uh, mm-hmm. before the really rhythmic kind of uh, almost minimalist kind of setting that happens uh, subsequently but mm-hmm. uh, i think a lot of the 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 protest element for that kind of clickbaiting um uh ploy that a lot of marketing uses in the 21st yeah. century here um is this notion of of distraction and capturing attention and focus almost in some way stealing it right mm-hmm. um and so this is this is kind of what i'm highlighting with those particular uh phrases do you think this is a this might be a difficult and it's a very broad question but do you think that there's a musical corollary to clickbait like in the media like are there composers who use techniques or musical ideas or ways of advertising that are clickbaity and that's a, I don't have an answer to that that's super open ended so you know, know that's that's a wild thought to consider and I I would imagine that there are probably certain types of musical tropes that we could uh, or, or maybe even ensembles, uh, mm-hmm. you know, right. like or or combinations of instruments that might seem um, oh topical or or um, like a buzzword. I guess it might mm-hmm. be a like like it's very it's, sure. it's very hip. Mm-hmm. Wow, I sound old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. Um, but I don't, I don't necessarily, it, that's fascinating that you bring it up because I, I don't necessarily know what those might be specifically or who might be using them. Um, mm-hmm. but that's, that's a fascinating notion to explore. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Food for thought for, for future thing. You know, what is, what is musical clickbait? Mm. <laughs> you know, what does that, what does that mean? But I mean, anyway, um, I mean, we can, we could argue that I, that I do that a little bit in this piece with, with mm. certain kinds of sonorities. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, these, these are also different, uh, you know, the musically, these are also based on things that I just generally like. Uh, sure. so, you know, there, there's an awful lot of glissandi, uh, in this, mm-hmm. which I, which I love, uh, mm-hmm. instruments that showcase continuity between pitches and pitch space. Mm-hmm. Um, like the trombone or string instruments yeah. or, or the human voice. And so to yeah. get that continuous spectrum, I just love mm-hmm. uh, utilizing that to, to its fullest potential or, or at least trying to. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, other, other things that, you know, choirs do well with, uh, with voice leading and mm-hmm. kind of covered dissonances. And it's, it's just a lot of these tropes are also choral in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and that, that's actually a perfect segue into what my next question was going to be, because I think one of the a really big challenge in the, the 21st century, I think, can be writing for choir. And mm. I think that there are uh, some composers who've obviously found huge commercial, financial and musical success in writing for choir. We don't oh, need yes. to name any, but I'm sure we can think of some of the, the people that I have in mind mm-hmm. saying that. <laughs> and, I do, and, I, and I don't mean to say that um, I don't mean to have a negative judgment on those people. I mean, they have found like a, a, a way to do what they do well. And oh, yes. And, it, and it's very marketable. It is. And, and I think that sometimes the, the sort of method for success that some of those composers have is often at odds with what like I might like to explore musically or even to some extent. Because I'm, I'm relatively familiar with your output. I've heard plenty of your pieces over the years. And, and I don't know that um, I would always say like, oh, yeah, when I think of Andrew Martin Smith, I think of, you know, 
uh, choir music that's going to sell to high school honor choirs and be performed all over the nation. You know, I, I don't always associate that, and I think that's true of a lot of uh, composers in academia because often we're exploratory and we, you know, we like to push boundaries. And anyway, the, the the reason I'm framing all this is what I'm curious is how do you approach writing for choir, which presents some challenges because. Uh, you know, it is the human voice, and they are used to often singing particular intervals and, mm-hmm. you know, particular consonants. Choirs are often made up of younger, you know, individuals who aren't as experienced with new music or, or amateurs, non-traditional. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah exactly. Yeah, and often amateurs, church choirs, etc. They're used to Bach chorales, you know. And so how do you approach writing for choir in a way that makes it so that a typical choir might be able to dig in and really enjoy and get something out of this, but that you artistically feel satisfied with what it is that you're exploring? So whenever this is this is such a deep question, and I and I love exploring this because whenever Mm -hmm. I utilize any text within a musical medium, uh, be it a a song or um, within an electroacoustic context or uh, an acoustic choir piece, um, I look at my job as a composer not in setting this text to music, but actually setting music to this text. So, mm-hmm. and, and it, it, I don't, I don't think this is necessarily a, a kind of semantic issue that I'm arguing. It's more of a mm-hmm. philosophical and and practical argument in that I sure. think. Like many composers uh, probably think, there is music inherent with the prose and poetry of a particular language. There's mm-hmm. there's inflection, there's contour, there's agogic accent, there's metric stress, there's rhythm, certainly. I mean, just listen to any language, and you can kind of understand how a native Czech composer, even in their instrumental music, sounds well, very Czech uh, and, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. you know, Dvorak or, or Janacek, ex- excellent kind of examples of these types of of thoughts in terms of prosody and obsession mm-hmm. with, with language to some extent. Um, and so I feel like my job as a composer is taking the text that I have and I act as a megaphone, amplifying and exaggerating mm-hmm. the music that's already present. And mm-hmm. so right from that phase, I think that resonates maybe pun intended, with uh, mm-hmm. uh, choirs of any skill level. Um, mm-hmm. Because if something feels good to sing, mm-hmm. it's always easier to sing. And mm-hmm. if something feels good to sing, it doesn't necessarily matter how it sounds because mm-hmm. it feels natural. And so you sure. can actually get away with doing some pretty wild stuff for choir mm-hmm. if you're yeah. approaching it, f- it from that fundamental standpoint of, of facility and language. Sure. Right. I think that's a really good answer. And also, just to address a point, you know, I, I don't know if I uh, I wasn't necessarily going to ask too much about um, the text that you were setting simply sure. because it's basically an ancient text and you're using a very small amount. You're, you're not setting a, uh, an Emily Dickinson's poem. You know yeah, what I mean? You're not setting true. some, you yeah. know. Um, and, and one thing, you know, um, a, a colleague of ours and someone we both know, which is Chris Dietz, who teaches at Bowling Green, I remember mm-hmm. he, he said something really good to me. And I, I don't think I've said a vocal piece since <laughs> he said something <laughs> like, um, you know, like, let's say that you are, you know, going to set Oscar Wilde to, to music, right? It's kind of like, well, what what do you bring to the table? Like, right. why does Oscar Wilde need you? Right. <laughs> you know, what? What? how pretentious are you to think? And I often think that when I see a lot of my colleagues set common literature to, to music, and I go, mm-hmm. did it need you, really? You are the one that's now elevating this poetry that was miraculous on its own. And I, and I like the way that you phrase that, because I think it helps solve that issue in that, you know, you you are acting as a megaphone to the text. You're attempting to enhance to get more out of that text. And right. I think that that's a good way to phrase that. Yeah, it's not it's not about it's not about me elevating this because this text mm-hmm. speaks on its own. And so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to create something that utilizes this text to hopefully it's most advantageous in this new medium. It is a mm-hmm. new work. It has it has it is not a translation of the poetry into music. It is simply mm-hmm. using the poetry or the prose as a structural foundation that is then, mm-hmm. you know, colored. Sure. Uh, great responses. Uh, another question for you, and this is, this is a great question that I get to ask because I've known you for a while, and I follow you on <laughs> Facebook, and I see the things you post. And, I mean, I can look. Let, I, let's do it right now. Yeah. I don't know what, I, let's put my money where my mouth is. Oh, let's God. see here. Let's go to your Facebook page. and Oh, there you are, because I was chatting with you. 
And let's see. Okay, it, it's not right now. But what I want to see is if I click through your cover photos, how far do I have to go before I see some kind of nerdy music theory chart or, or structure? Not far. It, it probably not won't far. Be far. No, no. <laughs> nope, nope, because I'm seeing the, the, the cardinality chart here with the, the number of PC sets and <laughs> number of set classes and the total numbers. And, you know, yep. I'm getting that. And then if I go a few in, I get this cool flow chart. I forget. what is this some, like, neo-Riemannian theory thing here? I don't know what this is. It's got all these, like, T subsets connected. It's a bunch of circles that are colored in with little pitch cells. It looks like I, I have no idea what this is. Yeah, yeah it's 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 uh, can't I can't be sure which one because you are right. There are a number. They are abundant. <laughs> yes. uh, the I've been playing around with a lot of uh, voice leading spaces that uh, Robert mm. Morris has talked about and, and several other okay, theorists sure. have talked about in their articles. So that's yeah, that's mm. my visualization of some of those things. Okay. One, what's funny, too, is because this is also fun, too, because you and I approach pitch so differently. I do none of that. I don't care. And, and I often say this when I'm talking to some of my students or, or people who are, for whatever reason, discussing my music. I say, like, of all the parameters of music that I value, pitch is, like, 97th on the list. You know, it's, like, it's right under font. For yeah. the, for the, like I, I just don't and I and I, I, I mean, take that with a grain of salt obviously pitch matters I just mean I don't end up focusing on it as much because it doesn't end up shifting what I tend to do but I know with you it does you spend I think it's fair to say you spend a lot of time thinking about different ways of approaching pitch and structures and vertical sonorities and, and melodic sonorities and sort of I exploiting different possibilities is that a fair thing to say it's, it's an incredibly fair thing to say interestingly enough though I think maybe the two of us are more similar than you realize in that <laughs> in that in my higher hierarchy of things i actually think mm -hmm. pitch is a lower priority um okay. <laughs> in fact that's one of the reasons why i'm obsessed with with these types of structures and uh -huh. and kind of relationships is because i figure if i do all of that and get it out of the way ahead of time mm -hmm. i don't have to think about it <laughs> sure <laughs> what, what i can actually think about is i can actually think does this make cool music yeah um, well and <laughs> and that's great to hear because i i definitely know people who don't get to that that question at the end, you know, I, and, yeah. and, I, and I and I find it to pitch, you know, I, I just to give a quick example. I remember someone at a festival I was at in the summer a long, long time ago. We were all given the chance to present on our music. And this one composer spent about 30 minutes talking about like how he exploited all the different forms of the rows to create this thing. And it was just so artistically void by the end. It was like. Uh, in 1960, maybe this would have been cool, but no one cares like, yeah. about like we want to talk about all the other stuff. So th the, the, the big question I kind of wanted to ask is like, how does your approach and you somewhat answered already, but maybe you could say more. How, how does your approach to pitch that often looks like it has a lot of forethought put into it? How is that being realized in Ipsa Vita? So uh, there is uh, a couple chords that I kind of treat as very important moments or maybe what uh, Eleni Lilios might call pillar moments. Right. Yeah. Um, and I always and use that term. I always say pillar chords. It's so, I love it's that so term. good. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. um, the the idea here was that I wanted uh, to work with harmonic relationships that were sharing some kind of commonalities with those important chords. So basically, mm -hmm. all of the harmonic things that you hear in this piece are mm -hmm. uh, within some kind of KH subset or superset relationship with these important pillars. Okay. Um, and uh, I also make sure that the chords that I produce are chords that I find to be genuinely engaging and, and pleasant mm -hmm. to work with. Sure. The, the one that I really enjoy. In fact, to the extent that I think my wife recently told me, she's like, God, I'm so sick of hearing 015 from you. Could you please, could you move on to another tricord, please? But I mean, 015, of the, of the tricords that exist, which there's not many. There's we, only 12. And there's only 12. Yeah, exactly. Um, you need to hear a piece by Jody Nagel called Triceratops. Um, oh, man. She uses all the tricords for different movements. Anyway. Yeah. Um, but uh, of the tricords, that's a good one. So I think that, you know, you ignore Jamie. Stick with it. That's, that's one of the better ones. <laughs> um, I, you know, it's it's very versatile. It's and mm -hmm. and you know a lot of uh, that that trichord is uh, particularly, uh, t for lack of a better word, in the moment, tonal. Uh, I mean, there mm -hmm. there are significant tonal implications to what that is, but there's uh, there's a strong uh, perception of root in that mm -hmm. in that particular trichord but but there's also a little bit of edge there's that nice dissonance you could look at it mm -hmm. in some ways as maybe a major seven chord uh without the fifth or you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of ways you can kind of reflect on that three dash four mm -hmm. um but i think the way that my harmonic language unfolds in this piece is very much related to that notion of commonality and common mm -hmm. tone and how mm -hmm. how this kind of 015 sonic environment at the beginning of which the, the voices are literally just kind of 
Uh, I know it does that. Rob McClure is going to kill me. It does the thing where we start out with one pitch yep, yep. and it, it, it grows out from there. Very wedge like. Yep. Uh, but we have this I th- kind I of think, <laughs> I think there's an episode of this podcast where I talk shit about that. and I yeah. say something like, so help me if I hear another choir piece that starts Ooh, and yep. then the minor second appears above yep. it. I, yep. I swear I say that on an episode anyway. Yep. Oh, no, the, uh, I'm I'm entirely guilty of this uh, in this particular piece. But um yeah. I really liked how that kind of uh, undulating aleatoric fabric of the 015 kind of emerges from this, and then we get kind of the the delivery of the text as all of this is happening. I, it, it was a nice mm-hmm. uh, bed to to yeah. kind of set things on. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, I mean, I, and one of the reasons I ask about that is because I think my my opinion upon listening to this piece was that the use of pitch and harmony I think was very successful. I think it helps the piece stay very interesting and create moments of tension and release, and it's really exciting and. I know one thing I often talk about with my students, you know, they, they want to write tonal music or they don't, but we talk about, you know, why the tonal system makes it sometimes easier to compose is because mm. if you use that system, you're automatically, like, hierarchy is taken care of for you. Yeah. So you create moments of arrival that are meaningful and moments of, you know, movement away and all that, you know. Mm-hmm. But then when you break from that, you have to come up with systems of your own, I think. To, I want to create those personally in my music, and I think you and I are similar. Yes. That I, I want moments of, of of importance with these particular pitches that outweigh these pitches, so that mm-hmm. when we move away from them, it creates tension. You know, right? And and I think that this piece um, does that very effectively. And, and I I don't know if I had. Now that I'm looking, I'm scrolling through the score right now, and I'm seeing all the 015s. <laughs> now that you say it, <laughs> I didn't I didn't realize it, but I'm realizing how often I heard that, and that's really great. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> I, I, I certainly, I, uh, again, time-wise, I don't know how much more we want to say, but um, I will potentially have some follow-ups. But what about you? Any things that, you know, you asked this of me, other things that, that you might want to share about this piece that you think are worth mentioning or things that are meaningful or intrinsically of value in this piece? Man, I think, I think we've all, we've, we've hit a lot of the, the points that I definitely wanted to get to with, with kind of how it came about and mm-hmm. what's maybe underneath it all and the pitch structure and architecture, of course, which I love. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, you know, the, the score, uh, thank you for, for your compliments that you've given me about mm-hmm. the, the score earlier and the harmonic function. The score was, was fun to put together because obviously mm-hmm. I like to incorporate elements of chance. Um, yeah. You know, even though I'm so just like rigorous with my pitch background, I, I never want that again to be what the piece is about. It's going to mm-hmm. be about, you know, the surface can be very expressive or... Um, mm-hmm. improvisatory, uh, I would mm-hmm. hope. And and that also gives a little bit more agency back to the performers to kind of create something new. Maybe what you were talking about with your piece too, how another magician, right, would mm-hmm. would maybe <laughs> have a different sense of timing that you'd kind of want to kind of uh, account for in a, in mm-hmm. a subsequent iteration or a different piece. Um, so I, I like the idea of multiple choirs um, coming to this piece and and being able to play with certain gestures for a longer period or shorter periods mm-hmm. of time and, and really kind of creating a life of their own with this music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think you and I are very much of the same mind on that, which is maybe that's a great place to end. Um, so make sure you give a, a, a listen to this wonderful piece, which is Ipsa Vita by Andrew Martin Smith. Uh, it's one of the more enjoyable choir pieces I've actually heard in quite a while. I really did enjoy this. So I was really oh, glad well, you picked you this. Oh, thank you so much. Um, <laughs> and, and I say that as someone who I'm not always the biggest choral music fan too. And part of that is just because of some of the people writing some music for some choirs, you know, it, it saturates <laughs> the world. Um, and I, I don't, I don't want to name names, but it rhymes with Schmerich Schmidiker, you know, and, um, because, <laughs> he listens. So I'm going to catch flack from him. No, um, That's but, funny. Well, I certainly couldn't have done it without uh, Vernon mm-hmm. Huff and the Fredonia Camerata. Their musicianship in the premiere performance that we're going to listen to today mm-hmm. um, is absolutely astounding. So a huge thank you to them. Let's all enjoy Ipsa Vita by Andrew Martin Smith. And now I'm going to sing it. <laughs> I love it. I <laughs> That's love my it. lead in. I'm going to sing it now. Anyway. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> Thank you. 
Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com. Thank you.